Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and, most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Richard Slaughter has had over a 40-year commitment to futures work. He completed one of the first PhDs in future studies at the University of Lancaster. He is an internationally recognised futurist, foresight practitioner, author, editor, teacher and innovator who has worked with a wide range of organisations in many countries and at all educational levels. He was Foundation Professor of Foresight and established the Master of Foresight program at Swinburne. Richard is a prolific writer. The publications page on his website is 15 pages in length. I'm not going to go into trying to describe that. That would take the whole podcast. When the Association of Professional Futurists awarded their Most Important Futures Work Award, he had three entries. The 2005 Knowledge Base of Future Studies, the Futures on Integral Methodologies, and the Biggest Wake-Up Call in History. In 2010, Richard was voted one of the best all-time futurists by the members of the Foresight Network Shaping Tomorrow. And in 2015, he became Emeritus Member of the Association of of Professional Futurists. Richard says while attempting to slowly wind back, he remains active on several editorial boards and in mentoring members of the next generation of Foresight practitioners. Other activities for Richard include thinking about writing his memoirs, advanced photographic work with wildlife, street art, and his grandchildren in the UK and Australia. Finally, with the support of the APF, he and Andy Hines have recently embarked on a new update of the Knowledge Base of Future Studies 2020. Welcome to FuturePod, Richard. Thanks, Peter. Great to be here. So, Richard, first question for our guest is, how did you get into the Foresight community? Well, I guess the beginning is the fact that I was uh, conceived during the end of World War II and grew up in uh, post-war Britain little two-story terraced houses and as I grew up there were spots around the city called bomb sites and I didn't really knew, know what that meant except that you can go and play there if your parents weren't watching and uh, therefore everything was really uh, sort of um, limited, a bit grey. Uh, I remember rationing, still applying, my parents having to go and pick up um, bread, butter, eggs, milk, that sort of thing and use coupons in order to do so. So um, a pretty, pretty grey uh, world, but a real highlight in that world as I got to be seven, eight, nine, ten, can't remember exactly, was a, a boys' comic that uh, came out in the post-war years called The Eagle. My mother approved of it because the editor was a churchman and she kind of felt that if that was the case then it wouldn't be too, too problematic for me. So I was encouraged to, uh, to read it and they bought it for me. And the thing is that the eagle had on its front page a most uh, colourful, beautifully illustrated story under the heading of Dan Dare. 
which kind of sounds rather dated in these times. But back then it was as if someone switched on this brilliant Technicolor light once a week for me. And I couldn't wait to get my hands on the Eagle comic because it had a Dandare story on the front two pages and a biblical story on the back and lots of things of interest to boys. But what was so important about that was also that the, uh, the artist, Frank Hampson, had managed to uh, create and render a very detailed future world. It had lots of technology in it. It had spaceships and cars and brilliantly produced cities and so forth. I mean, he really was an, ex an outstanding illustrator. So I think from a very early age, I took unconsciously took in this idea that the future could be good and bright and interesting. And while there were some awkward people like the nasty green Mekon floating around on his little uh, anti-grav, whatever it was, causing problems throughout the solar system, there's always Dan and his, his colleagues to somehow right the balance. So there was evil in the world, there was difficulty in the world, but there was also a balance. There were men and women, well-illustrated women, so that was unusual in those times. Uh, Professor Peabody uh, was one of those. And these were all modelled on real people, so it carried a kind of um, convincing sense that this was, it was an alternative world, but it was possible. So my early view of the future or futures was that it could be great and there would be people there and all sorts of wonderful things would be happening. But as time went by and I started to read SF in children's books and then the into paperbacks and so forth, something really interesting happened. It was a sense that more and more people were looking ahead and becoming rather concerned about what they found there. One uh, SF writer told me that the question in his mind was always, if this goes on, what then? So, for example, John Brunner wrote uh, several novels about uh, overpopulation and uh, rendered them into really quite powerful and detailed dystopias. And it was his way of, of pointing to, uh, to an issue that perhaps he thought a lot of people in the world weren't paying much attention to at that time. But as time went by, more and more people started looking at the rapid evolution of technology and writing books, novels, about uh, over-technologized worlds. And I think this really became very dominant over, over several decades. So more and more what happened was that the image, the collective images of the future slowly deteriorated or steadily deteriorated to the point where almost everybody was writing one sort of dystopia or another. They didn't feel that they had the material, the inspiration, the evidence in the real world to write utopias, possibly with the exception of people like Ursula Le Guin, who managed to, uh, to write books that didn't fall into utopia, dystopia contrast, but more subtle and more interwoven. So that's a whole other story. The point is, generally speaking, in literature and outside of it, people began to think about the future more seriously. It seemed to be a bigger and bigger challenge. I then left the UK in uh, 1969 and went to live in Bermuda as a, as a teacher. And this was a, a major shift from um, the grey skies and muted colours of the UK to uh, a sub subtropical island 700 miles south of New York, just 22 square miles in area, tiny, and yet um, so fascinatingly different. Bright skies, birds, tropical 
vegetation. I was very fortunate because my best friend in Bermuda became a chap called David Wingate, and he was the government conservation officer. His worldview was entirely different to anything I'd ever met before because whereas most of us live in human settlements and we take the framework of buildings, cars, roads, all the civil infrastructure as the world, David's view of the world was that Bermuda was just one little pebble in the vast flow of energy and organisms of all kinds in the air, on land, in the sea. And so I began to absorb from this chap uh, a sense that human beings were actually a very small part of this whole story and that the part that I'd missed out on was understanding something about this wider web of life that I suppose we'd sum up in the word ecology these days. Back then, that was quite a radical term, quite a new term. That experience really, I think, woke me up. And I've used that waking up metaphor throughout my career because I began to see that Bermuda was actually a microcosm of the whole global situation. It was easier to understand because it was tiny, but the same things were happening elsewhere. So in Bermuda, development became a problematic term. If you wanted to develop something, you had to build over something else or take out something else. So the cedar and palmetto rainforest had shrunk. More and more houses were built, more traffic. And the whole thing became more like a mid-ocean pressure cooker than the, the idyllic uh, holiday destination that it liked to portray itself as. That was when I came across a writer called Lewis Mumford, and his work was just inspirational for me because he wrote books like The City and History, so his perspective went back millennia, and his analysis of technology and power, techniques and human development, as he called it, really began to illuminate to me that there were some issues here that no one had ever mentioned that I knew nothing about particularly his book, The Pentagon of Power, because that argued that during the pyramid-building age of Egypt, that a system of power based on the domination of the many by the few had actually come into existence at that time and had been replicated over and over again throughout history. Therefore, I could see there were, there were issues here that needed dealing with. So I found myself very constrained in Bermuda and very unhappy and ended up moving back to the UK to get into something called the School of Independent Studies at Lancaster. So the University of Lancaster uh, gave me the chance to uh, really start uh, getting clear about what I thought I was about. It required me to do a conventional part one, sociology, uh, geography and biological science as it happened which is great because uh, here was I looking a lot of, at a lot of biological ecological systems and I hadn't got bio in uh, biological science in my background so th there was a chance to uh, go into the lab and into the uh, actual practicalities of looking at how organisms functioned leaves bodies uh, ecosystems and really get a, a clear idea of what that was about the, the geography was useful too because I remember looking at 
aerial maps or diagrams of Liverpool, for example, throughout the stages of its development and thinking there was something odd about the way that over time it just grew and grew and grew. So even then the issue of growth, even though it wasn't a theoretical interest, would raise questions like, is this, is this necessarily good to have this little settlement just become so, so huge? And the sociology, well, that ended up being very powerful as well because without a background in some sociological work, I mean, how can you get inside what's happening within, uh, within cultures? So the, it was a very sound idea to get people coming into the independent studies program to actually go through those three areas as part one and pass those. And while doing that, to work with the mentors that were there for this purpose to set up the, um, the, the other two years of your degree. So I had the, the delight and the privilege of actually being able to co-design my own degree. And that sense that educational institutions can be there not just to impose earlier ideas, other people's ideas on people, but also to allow people to explore and to build and to create with, with help and with guidance and assistance their own. That facilitative approach to education is something I've carried with me ever since because it made a lot of sense to me. And I think there are many other people who would have also had they had the chance found that really handy too. The point where things really took off was when I took a course uh, offered by a chap called Brian Wynne, and it was simply called Alternative Futures. Up to that point, I had no idea that there was a, a field of study or anything related to futures. But in taking that one little course unit in the sociology area, I discovered a whole literature that had actually already begun some years ago. People like Herman Kahn were prominent in it, and there were mostly mostly technical, uh, U.S.-based folk, uh, but also European. Bertrand de Juvenal, The Art of Conjecture, works like that. And what was so good about this course is that Brian was very thorough, so he would give out big um, bibliographies and reading lists, letting people choose what they pretty much wanted to follow. And of course, to me, that was a goldmine because for the first time ever, someone was giving me a concentrated uh, list of sources that I could um, follow. And I have very strong memories of walking around the, uh, the physical stacks in Lancaster Library, pulling out uh, journals that were actually from different fields, from economics and sociology, from te technical studies and so forth, to find the material that was about the future and that people had, people had written in a whole variety of different disciplinary settings. But with that happening, I realized that finally, I'd, in a sense, I'd come home because at last I could see that there was something here that was worth grasping, something uh, substantive, something real, something that other people thought were important too. And it was my chance to, to get into that. That was really the starting point, going to Lancaster, meeting Brian, having taking the course and seeing, okay, so this is where things started from here on in. Brian was one of my main mentors at Lancaster. He was uh, well known, uh, became well known later because he's, he turned up at the uh, wind scale inquiry into uh, the reprocessing of nuclear materials and recorded his impressions every day. 
and uh, wrote, then wrote the authoritative book about it. And so he was, he was very well known uh, for that and many other, many other works. He was also a very accessible chap and very happy to share uh, his knowledge uh, with me. So he was a great mentor. The other person that became important to me once uh, I had registered for my PhD was someone from the educational, the Department of Educational Research by the name of John Reynolds. John was a very quiet sort of chap, very humble sort of fellow, but the more I got to know John, he became my supervisor, the more I understood that there was this huge world of uh, social theory of which I really knew nothing. Just to give you a sample, he directed me to a source once called um, Contemporary Schools of Meta Science. Now, to someone coming freshly to that kind of material, this is quite an eye-opener. But to really keep it, keep it brief, what John taught me, helped me to understand, was what critical social theory was. So that word, being critical, in everyday parlance means that you're finding something wrong with something. But critical theory, in the way John opened my uh, mind to it, was much more about understanding the deep underlying threads of change, processes, symbolic and uh, meanings that were being negotiated and challenged all around us, so that it actually became possible to see, start seeing social phenomena in some depth. That's where the, the, the issue of depth came from, because on the surface you just see the stuff that exists, the um, physical world around you, but it requires a whole other mindset to get to grips with how that actually got there, what's keeping it in place, what helps it to change. So this critical social theory was, uh, was really central and it enabled me after a year's working on my PhD to see that most of the work I came across was dealing with uh, phenomena in the external world, particularly trends and forecasting and the kind of hard-edged, often very quantitative work. Whereas with the critical understanding in mind, you could see how futures could actually develop this whole other dimension, which looked at the constitution of social reality. So the, uh, the work that I looked at then began to sort of build this into something really quite powerful. I'll come back to that. So David Wingate in Bermuda, Brian Wynne, John Reynolds. Someone else that became very important was uh, Hannah Arendt. She wrote a marvellous book back in the late 50s called The Human Condition. And one of the concepts that just flew out of that book for me was a notion of what she called the partnership of generations. And I thought, what a wonderful way to conceive of that. Everything we have and do is based on what other people had and did. So why don't we just appreciate that and realise that just for a while, we're in the seat that they were in, and it's our job now to carry this forward. Wonderful idea. And another person that helped a lot uh, was Joanna Macy. Uh, Joanna Macy's work in the U.S. was very much about um, helping people deal with their responses to what was then called the, the nuclear threat, which was very real back then. So her work was about personal empowerment in the face of catastrophic failure and disaster and I found that work really really helpful and was actually able a bit later on to go to a, a week-long seminar with her in Cumbria 
and about a dozen other people. And I was able to draw from Joanna the sense that our feeling uh, for the world, our feelings, our caring, our love and concern for it, is at the same time the source of, or one of the sources of great strength that we have for dealing with it. And I think that's an absolutely vital connection to have made. Without Joanna, it's hard to see how a lot of the fear and empowerment work in relation to futures could have really progressed the way it has. Another person who has been important throughout is uh, Wendell Bell. I first met Wendell when I went to Toronto for a conference in 1980. The WFS called it the first global conference on the future. And Wendell was there, we were in the same session, and we became um, good friends. And he stayed a very close colleague all the way through my career. Like uh, Adolf Hannick later on, Wendell was always the person I could go to and say, what do I do about this, or what do you reckon about this? And he'd give you this wonderfully rich and straightforward response. I never get a chance, never got a chance to meet uh, Dennis Meadows or Donella or any other Jürgen Randers of the Meadows team, but back in Bermuda, somebody towards the end of my time there, about 1974 or 5, uh, somebody actually gave me a copy of the first Limits to Growth. And again, carrying that into this time of study and being aware of what that was about, that has been one of the real constants, again, of my thinking of, in my life ever since, uh, ever since then, because it seems to me that this story about limits and what that means presented the human species with possibly one of the greatest gifts it would ever get. But very unfortunately, it was not ready to receive that gift at that time. And in fact, some parts of the species even now are not ready for it. So this was a story that would have really saved us an awful lot of hassle, but powerful central story, beautifully brought up to date by, in more recent years, by Karen Higgs, whose book Collision Course describes the implications of this many, many years later. For some time, I persevered in the UK after I finished my PhD. I got a postdoc fellowship, which was great because it meant during that two years that I was able to actually render a lot of the intellectual idea stuff into curriculum materials because my PhD was about critical futures and curriculum change. So the whole point of, of what I'd done was to say, okay, we've got this dimension called futures. It gives us some handles, some concepts, some ways of beginning to feel a little bit more confident, a bit more empowered about these challenging futures. How does this, what form does this take in the school curriculum? I was able to put together the first futures tools and techniques and curriculum materials, which I had plenty of opportunities to try out in various uh, different places, different schools, different environments. And then as a uh, member of the postgrad team at, at the department, I was, I was also looking after small groups of people who were training themselves to teach uh, dip eds. So that was all good, but it eventually ran ran out. I had to face this um, really awkward fact that although I was fully minted as a professional futurist, there was no work in the UK. So this is an awkward time. But at the same time, I got friends uh, overseas, and one of them contacted me from Melbourne and uh, said, would you be interested in working together? 
Noel Goff had been working uh, here at Victoria College uh, for some years, and he'd independently developed some marvellous teaching materials around futures. So he and I hit it off immediately, became uh, firm friends, and he visited uh, the UK. And from this um, rich relationship with, with him, he was involved in uh, helping the Commission for the Future at that time organise a, a conference for what was going to be called the Bicentennial Futures Education Project. So I got invited out to Melbourne in um, 1986 to address uh, the conference. And that was great for me because nothing happening in the UK. What am I supposed to do? And yet this call, we're interested enough to fly you over all that distance to come and address this conference. Aha, there is somewhere that looks it looks interested. In fact, they'd put money into a two-year project, which uh, I ended up playing a very small role in. So um, Noel, was, Noel was a good friend and a, a, and a great, and fulfilled an essential step, as it were, in, in f helping me find a way forward. In Melbourne, one of the people who I immediately met was Hedley Beer, professor at Melbourne Uni, and Frank Fisher, who was at Monash at the time. Uh, Hedley was very welcoming, very um, positive. He, he'd already himself got interested in some futures stuff. And Frank Fisher, his uh, wonderful work at Monash to do with social relations of everything from photocopiers to cars and so forth, was a natural kind of alliance. And Frank organized for me to come back to Monash as a visiting fellow for a short time. So again, that helped me while I was trying to find my feet here. It took a little while, but eventually I did get a job at Melbourne Uni as a lecturer in social education and futures, which is pretty much a first, I think, for Melbourne Uni. <laughs> but with Hedley Beer as head of department and other good colleagues around me, I settled in. And that was a very productive part of my career because I was actually able, with the support of colleagues, to run courses on, on futures for teachers and, and tr training teachers, become part of their professional sort of infrastructure. And Hadley and I even wrote a little book together that was uh, published in uh, 83, I think, called uh, Education for the 21st Century, which was really, it looks really quite uh, modest now, years later, but at the time it was definitely uh, welcome uh, in the profession. And the last two people that really stand out for me as being the, my main mentors were Ken Wilbur. I remember coming across his massive book, Sex, Ecology, Spirituality, and just feeling as if I was imbibing this massive amount of energy. It's very hard to explain, but just thought, this is so useful. Not, not to uncritically just think, oh, Ken Will was wonderful, but just absorb the, the insights that this talented man had put together over such a long time, helping us to see things in a fresh way. And then Adolf Hanek, who uh, became a, a very good friend of mine. Adolf ended up years later being the main contact with um, Swinburne, and he worked actually with the vice-chancellor at the time. And there came a point in his normal interactions with the, the VC and others where the question came up, have you thought of doing anything about futures? Which, of course, no one had. But that was the starting point that led to Adolf and I writing a proposal, 
and an invitation coming through in 1999 to set up the Australian Foresight Institute. Richard, the, the next question for our guest is around particular tools and frameworks that have been foundational and important in the, in the development of their practice and their work. Yes, I think it's worth briefly mentioning that at the outset, once uh, I started on my PhD with uh, John Reynolds as my supervisor, that the, the practice at the time was as best described as rigorous scholarly work on the foundations of futures. You have to come to terms with the fact that in, in reality and for most people, the future is a problematic subject. It's not here, they're not here, and they're not yet. You know, how come? How can you possibly study it, people say? Uh, as, as I'll mention a bit later, there are, there are cogent reasons why we do pay, pay attention to the future. So it was, it was about looking at the, at the scholarly foundations and understanding uh, where the, the roots of futures lay. So essentially, I think I became very dissatisfied with external accounts of change, wherever they came from, because it was just dealing with what was in front of your eyes, the obvious, and moving into what I started calling critical futures meant that it was possible to, I love this phrase, probing beneath the surface. Somebody wrote a diagram showing a city, but under the city there's all this infrastructure that's got to work properly if the city's going to work, and it's a lovely, lovely metaphor. Richard Michel did that. What's going on under there? And what's, what's really happening? So a great inspiration in this respect was uh, Luckman and Berger's marvellous little book, The Social Construction of Reality. And once you've started to open to that, and what it means, it leads to the sense that there are, there's more than one layer, there's more than one level to look at things on. So I began thinking about this conception of, of uh, futures work as being in some sense layered. I think it was back in about 1989 that I presented a paper on, I wrote a paper for futures on that and presented at a federation conference, World Future Studies Federation conference in Budapest. Uh, Alan Tuff had organized one of his, what he called, cutting-edge ideas sessions. And he'd sit there, Alan was a really mild, gentle sort of guy, but he'd sit there with his his clock and he'd give people an exact amount of time and as soon as they finished, bang, the clock would go off. Doesn't matter who you were, stop. And I loved that because it made you really uh, focus down on uh, exactly what you wanted to say. So I gave this this uh, brief presentation there about various layers of futures, empirical, epistemological, and so forth. You know, a whole variety of people in the room really found that quite interesting. It seemed to me that this I was beginning to really increase the range, the depth, the coherence of, of futures work. It led me to think more about how that could be further developed. And of course, when Integral came on, on board... I realized that something was missing from the critical model. And that something was a coherent account of the human and cultural interiors. So Integral Futures became for me a way of giving to Futures work a, a kind of, at the, at the simplest level, a checklist. Have you thought about 
how people operate? Have you thought about the threads and currents and forces in culture? Have you thought about how they might have influenced the infrastructure you're standing in or impact on the world you're living in? The, the model that Wilbur came up with of the four quadrants, the interiors, exteriors, individual and collective, became a kind of badge, very simple badge, to prompt a processes of thinking and asking oneself and searching for resources in each of these um, areas. It was, to me, so liberating to know that in the human interiors, the upper left quadrant, that you could actually integrate material from the people who'd been rigorously studying human functioning over decades. We'd had to touch some of that as beginning teachers ages ago, and this was like a much more developed view of how people develop through various stages, how the worldviews were developed, how different values came into the picture. I'd always been fuzzy about values. I'd seen them as amorphous clouds that you could never really, never really grasp very easily. But when uh, Wilbur's Integral Futures developed and others looked at values using that model and came up with spiral dynamics, and this is funny, when I first heard of spiral dynamics, I thought, oh no, here's another import. We don't need too much of this. Great name. Who's marketing what? You know, really cynical. And that was one occasion when I was dead wrong. Because looking at the world through an awareness of spiral and how we're all activating certain potentialities, uh, our filters, our blind spots, all that developmental stuff, bringing that into the picture just helped to uh, make any discipline, including futures, much more capable of dealing with the realities of, of real people, real life, real situations. And equally, the lower left brings in all that work that I touched on when I did that little bit of work on sociology at the very outset. I could see then that uh, Luckman and Berger, social construction reality, that's what it was about. And the main concept that came through their work was that of legitimation. Who says that something's okay? What keeps that sense of being legitimate in place? What undermines it? So in a sense, there was some things beginning to connect up here. If rich and powerful entities had decided that it was in their interest to torpedo the limits to growth at the very outset, how might those efforts to destroy something valuable themselves be undermined? One answer, by thorough critique. Some of the other tools and concepts that came out of that time were, on the other hand, really very straightforward and simple. Uh, back when I was at Lancaster, I received a call from a teacher's centre in Wolverhampton. Someone had heard that I was doing something on futures and education and wondered if I could come down and help them. It appears that they some teachers had got together and tried to... Um, work out themselves something to do with helping kids feel more positive in a in a town that was not doing too well. They had ended up getting rather depressed themselves. So I don't know why they thought I could help, but anyway, I thought I'd try. I thought about it very carefully, and I realized that there was actually a way through with that that was really quite straightforward. I called it the empowerment principle, and it really means putting together a simple workshop and this is good for kids as well as teachers. This is something, that one of those tools that works on any level that you like to implement it. But the idea is to look at something that's feared, 
with a group, have a discussion, and to evoke from this group uh, what you can think of as being inadequate or low-quality responses. Of course, they're quite easy to find. You know, denial, avoidance, abuse, whatever you want to do. There's always ways of, of, of getting rid of it temporarily. But then looking again at the same problem and then very carefully teasing out what you might mean by high-quality responses. What is a high-quality response? So you might get things like oh, doing some work on an issue to find out more about it, understanding that there are different ways of viewing it, maybe even talking to someone who, or getting some information from someone involved and seeing if there was a way, some connection somewhere. The, the point of that, though, is not really in those specific results, but the whole exercise, it just raises this question, what do you mean by a high-quality response? That's the concept to embed in people's minds. And it works for kids, it works for adults as well, because that is not a pat, simple solution. That's the starting point for a quest, for a journey, for a process of dealing with something that might be uncomfortable. Yeah, it's very true that if a person can describe low quality, then you can then move them to then describe high quality. And if a person understands what they're dissatisfied with, then you can then you can move them into the space of, because they are still interested enough to even know what's dissatisfying them. Absolutely. Another line that became uh, central to my way of operating, particularly with schools, teachers, kids, was to really focus on the power of, of futures concepts. I came to believe over time that uh, without futures concepts, it was very difficult to open out the mind space of forward thinking and activate it and apply it. So if kids could be introduced to different models of past, present and future, the interaction of the past and present, stories, questions about the future, really simple stuff, they could provide starting points for more advanced concepts like some of the methods, um, timelines, simple scenarios all sorts of, you know, the uh, way into some of the techniques that, uh, that some professionals use. Another of the tools that came out during the time I was at Lancaster and afterwards really was inspired by the work of Hazel Henderson. Uh, she's an American futurist who'd always been very strong on left-hand quadrant, that is to say human and cultural interiors material. She was always looking for ways for people to gain some sense of agency and control and innovative capacity in their own locations. And it seemed to me that what she was offering, and, and many other people were doing this in other ways, was uh, as a response to difficult issues, uh, population, environment, technology, were reconceptualizations, really new ways of thinking, new ideas, new concepts. And so I saw a lot of the futures literature, or rather a branch of it, as throwing up huge numbers of new ideas. But the interesting thing was that most of them fell by the wayside. A million ideas out there, but very few actually taking, being taken up. Well, what, what's really going on here? So it seemed to me that going back and using some of that stuff from Lachman and Berger about legitimation, you could see that a new idea coming from someone like Hazel or anyone, in fact, is impacting or trying to impact on a settled way of being, a settled pattern, a society, an institution, a way of life. And it was being ignored or 
judged or actively rejected. This was interesting because a few things were actually getting through and being accepted. Uh, the idea of having solar panels, for example, is, was, was quite a new and fresh idea, but it, it, took, it took off because people could see ways of, even in the early days when they're very expensive, of actually getting back that money over time that they spent on the panels and doing something that was, a, that was useful for the, the wider picture. So I ended up writing this, um, while still at Lancaster, early version of something I called the T-cycle or transformative cycle, which you can apply really to any issue. You can apply it retroactively in the present or project it into the future. You can make it small, make it big, but you can track through that any issue or particular focus you have in mind and just check is this something that has uh, has or might actually make it through the cycle and if so why what is it about x or y or z that is accepted that makes it through whereas all the other things have fallen by the wayside so it it really became a way not of going deep into theory but of portraying really the basic elements of a change process. Yeah, it's it's a great tool also. I used it a lot, Richard, when I was classifying scanning because one of the questions you could ask yourself as a scanner, is this thing I'm, this hit, is this hit a breakdown of meaning? Is this hit around an, the generation an alternative? Is this hit about something being legitimated or delegitimated? It became another way to kind of categorise what you were making sense of in the world in terms of events in a process. And if you found an example of something being delegitimized, then you could go off as a scanner and look for evidence of things that were being legitimized. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's, it's a very simple tool, but a very powerful categorization tool as well. So I can't claim to have invented anything particularly major. I mean, I think that's a minor tool that it's of, of use to, to some people now and then. But I think I've also wanted to stress the role of futures concepts and ideas generally because it's only in engaging with those that one can actually build up one's um, real understanding, cognitive capacity to engage with futures. It is an abstract. It does come over as an abstract thing to start with. But then it's not on its own. Uh, religion, law, ethics, you know, not, none of these are things we can grasp either. So as hopefully we'll say towards the end, the human mind is beautifully adapted, in fact, to do these things. So really the main development, I suppose, is first of all realising that there was a dimension to futures work beyond the empirical that I called critical, and then secondly there was an extension to the critical futures that was enabled by adopting, critically and carefully adopting uh, an integral futures framework. And I must say that has proved to have been wonderfully productive uh, process because it's now the, the, the notion of, of a broad-based, uh, intelligent, uh, integral futures is now being applied to so many different issues. For myself, uh, I wrote a, an article for the Journal of Integral Theory and Practice uh, which summarised how I'd looked across a huge range of literature about climate change. And by using the categories, the four quadrants and the, the spiral dynamics, values and worldviews, by using those three different things, it's possible to sort out what was going on in different parts of the, of the literature. So you could very clearly see what people were concentrating on and therefore what their, the, the, the domains to which their 
suggestions were directed. It was a really clarifying task. And having done that, a second piece that really looked at, I suppose, addressing the gaps, if you like, about how an integrally informed approach to climate change could actually bring together a wider uh, perspective that's more broadly based. That's just one example, and obviously there are, are many others. You are listening to the FuturePod recording with Richard Slaughter. This ends part one. This interview continues with part two.